The pandemic is over, but that doesn't mean everybody's gone back to how things were in the before times. The social distancing response to the pandemic outlasts the pandemic itself. Some people, a minority, continuing to socially distance even after government mandates to distance have ended, and even after deaths and hospitalizations due to COVID have fallen very sharply. Welcome to The Pie. I'm your host, Tess Vigland. Economists are always talking about the pie, how it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we're talking about the most pressing matters of the day seen through the lens of economics. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. And in this episode, we're looking at how continuing fears about COVID infection are affecting whether people return to the workforce. Many, if not most, citizens of working age have gone back to their jobs in the three-plus years since the start of the pandemic. But not everybody has. And part of the reason is a lingering fear about workplace safety. Our guest today has new research showing the effect of these fears on the overall economy. We'll let him introduce himself, along with a little something else that we're going to try asking of all our future guests. My name is Stephen Davis. I'm a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. I've spent most of my career at the University of Chicago in the business school there. My favorite kind of pie, of course, excepting the pie podcast, would be apple pie, preferably with some vanilla ice cream. So, Steve, in previous episodes, we've had you on to talk about uh, the work from home phenomenon and what it meant to the labor force. Today, we're going to talk about another contributing factor, uh, which is long COVID and just general COVID fears. To start, I wonder if you could talk about how you go about parsing the reasons why people aren't returning to work or to their pre-pandemic activities. For this study, how do you know it isn't just because people don't want to go back into the office? Well, we, two approaches. We, one very simple approach is we ask them. <laughs> we ask them why they, uh, why they aren't working now or in the, as of the survey week. And we give them about nine or 10 different options. One of which is I am worried about catching COVID or other infectious diseases. That's what we call the self-assessment approach. There could be many other uh, reasons, including I just don't need to and I feel like a holiday. So that's a very simple method. The other method is we first ask people about their social distancing intentions, and in particular, whether they plan to continue uh, limited social distancing after the pandemic ends. So that's just asking them a question about their how they want to conduct their daily lives. And then we use that as an explanatory variable in a statistical model uh, that explains who's in the labor force and who's not. From there, we can do a lot of further things, and we can look to see whether desire to socially distance is related to objective measures of the risks associated with uh, working and the risks of catching COVID. So people who are in frontline jobs where they uh, encounter lots of customers and coworkers while they're working, those people are at greater risks of infection. Um, we know older people are more face greater health risks if they catch COVID to see how these social distancing intentions and their effects on labor force participation uh, relate to age and 
and things like that. And what we find is it's those people who are at most risk, either to themselves or someone else they care for, who are the most uh, concerned about infection risks, the most likely to engage in strong forms of social distancing, and the to withdraw from the labor force because of those uh, concerns and behaviors. Well, you found what is, to me, a striking and somewhat surprising amount of continued fear of infection. I, I don't think I'm alone in feeling like, in general, society moved on awfully quickly. Some might even say too quickly. And there's almost a collective intentional forgetting about this global calamity that happened to all of us. The U.S. government declared it officially over in May. And yet there is this segment of the population that has not moved on. Can you talk about who they are? Maybe break that down by some demographics? Yes. Um, first, and I think you, you hit the nail on the head, most people have moved on. <laughs> but in terms of those who really stand out with respect to their ongoing fears about infection and their intention to continue socially distancing activities, it's as I mentioned before, it's elderly people. We know those people are most at risk. It's also people who experienced long COVID themselves, meaning they just didn't have COVID and they got over it in a few weeks. But months later, they are continuing to experience debilitating physical symptoms. Okay, so those people are much more likely to be out of the labor force. And that kind of makes sense because they had a really bad experience with COVID. And that really bad experience can inhibit their ability to work. But it also, if they're reminded of their COVID experience every day because they're experiencing brain fog mm. or shortness of breath when they walk up and down steps, that constant reminder kind of keeps it front and center in their thinking and makes them more worried uh, that if they go back to work, if they encounter others, they might incur another case of COVID or some other infectious disease. Mm -hmm. And then a, a third category of people who, who really stand out as sensitive to these concerns about uh, infection risks are those who either live with or care for someone who is unusually sensitive uh, to infection risks. They're worried that if they get COVID, they might not get terribly sick, uh, but their husband or wife might catch the disease from them and suffer quite seriously. Is there any sort of divide uh, between men and women uh, amongst ages, younger people versus, I mean, I know you talked about elderly, but say people in their 20s versus people in their 50s? Yes. People in their 50s are both more worried about infection risks, and they are more likely to withdraw from the labor force because of those risks. When, when you look at men and women in their 20s, there's essentially no difference. Most are not that worried. They're correctly so. I mean, the, all the evidence suggests that young people are not at that bunch of risk uh, from COVID, and that shows up on our data. When you look into 30s, 40s, and 50s, you start to see a divergence. Women are more likely to continue socially distancing than men um, who are observationally similar. We don't know exactly why that is, but we suspect it's because women tend to play a larger uh, role in caregiving in the household, both care for children, um, but also care for parents and so on. So we see a divergence there that women are more concerned about these infection risks 
a little bit more likely to socially distance and stop working uh, because of these concerns than our men. Given the political divide in how the U.S. population responded to the pandemic, do you also see a political divide here in terms of who is hesitant to return to work? We do. <laughs> and it, it kind of goes in the direction that you would think. People who are uh, Republican-leaning tend to be less inclined to socially distance, other things equal. And people who are Democratic-leaning tend to be a little bit more. I don't. That's not the strongest pattern of the data but it comes out pretty clearly. Hmm. All right. So let's talk about what all this means for the labor force and the economy in general. How do you measure that and how statistically significant is it? Let me just start by observing a broader message that I think comes through uh, in our analysis, which is that the social distancing response to the pandemic outlasts the pandemic itself. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. In other words, some people, a minority, continuing to socially distance even after government mandates to distance have ended, and even after deaths and hospitalizations due to COVID have fallen very sharply. So there are these lasting effects on behaviors that I think are interesting because we might expect those to show up uh, in response to future pandemics or other events that lead people to uh, greatly adjust the way they live their lives. Hmm. That's kind of the underlying observation here. Now, in terms of what are some of its economic implications, well, those we can get a handle on by taking the statistical evidence and combining it with some very simple economic models or ideas. So one very basic idea in economics is that companies produce goods and services from inputs of capital and labor. Doesn't seem terribly deep. But you can take that idea and you can use it to estimate, well, how much output have we lost because of these people who don't want to work and instead continue to socially distance. So we do that kind of calculation. And, and for 2022, um, our estimates suggest uh, that output was about a little bit less than 1% lower in the United States um, because of these social distancing desires and people, the small minority of people who decided to withdraw their labor supply from the workforce. And you know, what's that worth? Well, we can put a number on that too. It's about $200 billion in lost output in 2022. That's not a small number. No, not a small number. I'm kind of, it's modest relative to the overall size of US GDP. As I said, it's a little bit less than 1%. But it's not chump change. It's, it's not something that we want to ignore. That's one thing we do. The other thing we can do is plays off the observation from our data that the withdrawal from the labor force is among less educated and older people. Okay, it's not uniform across the population by any means. Among college-educated people, for example, we, we essentially find no statistically discernible impact of these social distancing intentions on their labor force participation. But we see a big withdrawal from the labor force among less educated workers. That reduction in the supply of less educated workers actually led to an increase in their relative wages. 
So the relative wage of uh, less educated workers has probably been about two percentage points higher than it would have social distancing effects of the pandemic. So, Steve, when we're talking about people who um, have long COVID, have been around long COVID, people who saw friends or family suffer, die during the pandemic, and therefore are staying out of the, the labor force, is it possible to say what would bring them back? Do they want everyone in masks again? Well, they are coming back. They're just coming back slowly. So, you know, one thing is we do find a relationship between the actual severity of the pandemic situation and the intensity of people's concerns about infection risks and the intensity of their social distancing desires. Hmm. But it's kind of a slow lag response. So people's behaviors and their perceptions seem to respond with some lag um, to the actual change and the objective risks that they face. I'm not sure masks um, are actually going to address the fears that people have, but good ventilation in the workplace goes a long ways. We now know this goes a long ways to reduce infection risks, not just for COVID, but also influenza. So employers can both make sure that they have good ventilation, but also advertise that fact to their employees if it's true. And that's a way to reassure employees and anybody else who comes into the building that, look, we've got top of the line ventilation in this building. So even if some coworker or customer um, might have an infection, infectious disease, the chances that you get it are pretty low. So it's kind of an obvious constructive thing that can be done. And most new buildings do have good ventilation, but some older buildings don't. And uh, upgrading them to have better ventilation is is both a useful thing, but also uh, can be quite costly. Yeah, you mentioned influenza. Um, I wonder if it's possible to say whether the fear that you tabulated in the survey is a continued one of COVID or whether the kind of the experience of the pandemic just made people worried about all kinds of health issues in a broader sense that kept them from going back to work. Yeah, it's a great issue. We aren't able to nail that question. Our data suggest that the pandemic experience has made some people just more concerned about infection risks in general. But I wouldn't say we have super super tight evidence on that question. We don't. I wish we had stronger evidence, but my reading of the evidence is that yeah, infection risks have become more salient to people in general. Uh, and so it's not just about uh, COVID-related infection risks, but any other airborne respiratory disease. Is there any sense from the survey of how long this long social distancing could last? It's clear from our survey that these responses to pandemic-related behavioral shifts and concerns about infection last many months at least beyond the initial event itself and probably are going to last a few years before they're completely gone. So if you recall the pandemic experience, the last really big spike we had in COVID deaths was early in 2022. Mm -hmm. Since then, it's dropped 
um, you know, COVID deaths and COVID hospitalizations have dropped tremendously. It still happens. Uh, there's still lots of COVID infection, but as you suggested earlier, it's just become kind of another background risk in the minds of most people. Not coincidentally, since the spring of 2022, we have seen sharp declines in both social distancing uh, and its effects on labor force participation rates, according to our data, and sharp declines in the extent to which people who are not working say they're working because of infection worries. So I, so we've lost maybe half of the peak impact you know, in, the, in the space of a year, and, and that suggests it'll take at least another year um, before those negative effects on labor force participation have completely dissipated. Steve, what does all this say about how our personal experiences shape our economic decisions? I mean, maybe it's obvious. If if you're afraid, you're not going to behave the way you did pre-pandemic, right? But is there a larger lesson here? I think there's a larger lesson, and there's there's a literature to which we fit in that that tries to look more broadly at how searing personal experiences, let's put it that way, have legacy effects on people's perceptions and their behaviors. One famous paper in this literature, which is co-authored by my Booth colleague, uh, Stefan Nagel, finds evidence that people who came of age during the Great Depression um, are more likely to take a risk, uh, a risk-averse, prudent approach to their financial affairs in terms of you know, how they make, what kind of investments, whether they invest in risky stocks as opposed to safer bonds. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's a that's an example um, that I see as broadly in the same spirit. Uh, the Great Depression was a searing economic experience, of course, uh, for many people. The pandemic was a a searing experience um, in a somewhat different way. Health risks, obviously, and then even for people who came through the pandemic uh, with relatively mild health effects, were nonetheless quite worried uh, for a couple of years about what the pandemic might mean for them and their loved ones. So I think the the broader lesson is that what these intense personal and societal experiences. Um, have effects not only while they are underway, legacy effects that carry over to people's perceptions about risk and their behaviors that they undertake in order to protect themselves from perceived risks, that those, those legacy effects last quite some time. Steve Davis, thank you so much. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Tess. It's my pleasure as well. The Pi is a production of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago. If you'd like to keep in touch with the latest economic research from the University of Chicago, you can visit bfi.uchicago.edu slash subscribe. And you can sign up for our newsletter there as well. And of course, you can subscribe to the Pi on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Our theme music was composed by Story Mechanics, production assistance from the BFI communications team. I'm Tess Vigland, your host and executive producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.